following statistic that uh, in America, 70% of Americans consider themselves Christian, yet less than 20 attend church. What does that say about the importance of the church for Christians? What place does a church have in the life of the Christian? If 70% claim to be Christians, but less than 20 actually attend church. And I'm not sure what percentage that actually do that regularly. I am sure you could find at least some people in your own life who um, profess to be Christians but not, are not connected at all with a church. Or they rarely attend an actual church. There are people who love Jesus, at least so they say, but ignore the church. Can you think of some people in your own life who fit in that category? Yet Jesus himself said to one of his disciples that he, Jesus, will build his church. So why is it today that people find Jesus attractive, yet they might, cons they might consider themselves followers of Jesus, yet they ignore the very thing Jesus claimed to build. This morning, I want us to look at the book of Acts and review the book of Acts by looking at how Luke writes about the church in the book of Acts. I encourage you to open Scripture to Acts chapter 2. I'll be reading from verse 40 to 47, and then turn a few chapters to, verse, to chapter 4, uh, verses 32 to 38. If you did not bring your Bible this morning, you may find this passage in the Pew Bible in, on page number 911. As you turn there, open Scripture. I want to remind you that we have finished uh, the book of Acts. We've preached through the book of Acts for about 60-some uh, weeks, and right now we are reviewing uh, some themes of the book of Acts. We're just going through to review based on some themes, and today the theme we're reviewing is the theme of the church Next week, by God's grace, we will review the, theme, the book of Acts by looking at the theme of repentance. But this morning, we will look at the theme of the church. And here's the word of the Lord for us as we look at this passage, and really, we'll be looking at a few other passages this morning in Acts. But here's Acts 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Now turn to chapter 4, verse 32 to 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was no needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Well, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning, and Let's ask God to bless it, bless our time together as we hear from Him. Would you bow with me and ask God to pray, to, to bless us? Father, thank You that You have given us Your Word. Thank You that You have given us a testimony of Your church in the early days of the gospel. Father, we pray that we might learn this morning from what the church is supposed to be by looking and understanding how You have transformed that community of believers Father, transform us today, now, in this place. We pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit and for the glory of Christ. Amen. It's amazing that of the four gospel writers who gave a story of the story of the life of Jesus, one of them did not end the story of Jesus with his ascension into heaven, but kept on writing as if the story of Jesus kept on going. And it did. And it does. The story of Jesus for Luke doesn't end with Jesus' return to heaven. The story of Jesus continues on on earth through the church. For Luke, the story of God's salvation through Jesus continues in the life of the church. So friends, let's look this morning at how Luke describes the church in the book of Acts. How Luke describes the church in the story of God's salvation through Christ. Is a church just an optional upgrade if you really want to mature as a Christian? Is a church just an auxiliary experience once you're saved? Well, let's look at how Luke describes the church in the book of Acts. And I, I have five things I'd like to point out. There's many more that we could point out from the book of Acts. There's five things I'd like to point out to you this morning. And if you like taking notes, here's the first point. The church begins with the Old Testament people of God. The church begins with the Old Testament people of God. You may have heard the expression that Pentecost is the birthday of the church. Have you heard that phrase? Pentecost is the birthday of the church. And in some ways, it is. But in some ways, it is not. I will look at both this morning. Let's start with the way in which the Pentecost is not the birthday of the church. Well, it's not because, really, when we look at the way the apostles and the early church thought of themselves... They thought that what happen, what's happening with them is really a fulfillment of what God has promised to his people in the Old Testament. So that, for instance, in Acts 15, when the elders uh, and the apostles debate about the whole situation with the Gentiles, James rose up and said in Acts 15, verses 13 and 14, he said, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Now, that's a description that is key for the church. God is taking a people for his name. The church is a people who exist for God's name. 
God is gathering such a people for himself. But listen to what James says next. It says, And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And James is quoting a prophecy from, from Amos, from the Old Testament. And here is the prophecy. God says in Amos, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What is James doing here? How is James describing this new community of the church that now has been invaded by the Gentiles? He is describing this church community that's now receiving the Gentiles as a restoration that God is doing of the tent of David. God has promised from of old to restore the tent of David, to restore the people of Israel from the Old Testament. And in the midst of that restoration, God says, I will also insert the Gentiles to be a part of this people that I am restoring. In the same way, same evidence is when Jesus, um, why did he choose 12 people to follow him, 12 disciples? And why is it after the ascension and before Pentecost, Peter stands before them and says, based on the Old Testament, that the, le- the spot that was left empty by Judas must be replaced. And that happens before Pentecost. Why? Because even in the selection of the 12, Jesus was reconstituting a restored Israel. So that what we see here is that the story of the church is a restoration of the people of God that began with the Old Testament. You see, the people of God, Israel, in the Old Testament have failed. The tent of David has been destructed, has been ruined because of their sin. And now God has promised to restore the tent of David. And through that restoration, God will bring the Gentiles in. And that's the community of the church. I love what Edmund Clowney says in his book on the church. The church, the story of the church begins with Israel, the Old Testament people of God. So the church is a people of God whom God calls for the sake of his name, just as he intended the Old Testament Israel to represent him, to reflect his glory on earth, so that when others look at the people of God on earth, they would see a reflection of God himself through his people. And why is this important for us? Why do I bring this up? Why does Luke mention this for us? Because when people today claim to be Christians, yet they don't want to associate themselves with with the people of God, friends, that's a big red flag. That's a big red flag. The credibility of their profession of faith is at stake. They may misunderstand that God's purpose from the very beginning was not to save individuals, but to save a people for himself. And throughout the Old Testament, God's promise of restoration was not simply for individuals, but was for his people. So that on that foundation, the gospel is the good news that God is restoring a people for himself. That's why when somebody has a weak a a, a weak view of the church, they might actually have a weak view of the gospel itself and of the foundations of that gospel. 
So be wary, be cautious. The story of the church, the church begins with the Old Testament people of God. Here's the second point that Luke brings out. The church is a result of the gospel. The church is a result of the gospel. One of the major observations in Acts is that wherever the gospel is spread and believed and embraced and received, what it produces is not simply individual Christians, but it produces new communities that gather together regularly, that live life together in a real way. And these new communities are called churches. You know why they're called churches? Because they assemble. Because they gather. Because they live together. Like their Christian walk, they live it together. Notice in our text in Acts 2 that we just read, Peter exhorted a crowd in verse 40 by these words, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Then verse 41, it says that, So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then look what happens next. We read from verses 42 to 47 a picture of the life of this new community who just received the word, who were just baptized, and were now saved by God. And look at, what it, look at verse 44. And all who believed were together. Do you see that? That's why we see it at the church, because they gather. They live life together. Friends, it's, it's this simple that the gospel, when it's genuinely received, it produces the church, where more than one person responds to the gospel in an area. And throughout Acts, we see that whenever people respond to the gospel, churches pop up. Think of the first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas engaged in. They uh, go on their first missionary journey, sent by, from Antioch. They go to a few places. After they're done, what do they do? They decide to return back and visit the people that have just become Christians. In Acts 14, we see that when they go back and visit these new believers, they not only encourage them in God's Word, but they actually set leaders for them. They appoint elders. Well, you, you appoint leaders when you actually have a sense of community. You appoint an actual leadership for an actual community. That's what Paul does at the very beginning of his missionary journeys. Here's the bottom line. The gospel produces churches, not just Christians. Can we get that? The gospel produces churches. I love, I love what David Peterson says. The church is being called into existence by the risen Christ wherever the gospel is heard and obeyed. And today we seem to miss this point. We preach the gospel as if the church is not a part of it as if God is only interested in an individualistic relationship with people, and that is false. If we preach the gospel in such a way that the church is missed, or that the church is an auxiliary part of that, we might actually preach a truncated gospel, an incomplete gospel, because God is saving a people for himself through Jesus, and he's inviting individuals to belong to this newly restored people of God, whom he began with in the very beginning of the Old Testament. That's why in Acts we often read that the phrase, the Lord added to their numbers, is, it happens often because that's what happens. When people are saved, the Lord adds to the numbers of those who, 
who gather together to the church. God is not just saving individuals to leave them on their own. He's saving individuals to add them to the people that God is restoring. Friends, this is a story of the church. But there's another implication of this point, of the second point, that the church is a, is a result of the gospel. The implication is this. Who belongs to the church? If the church is a result of the gospel, who belongs to the church? Well, only people whom God has saved. Look at verse 41 in Acts 2. We read that it is those who received the word and were baptized, they were added that day to the church. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, first of all, welcome. We're so glad that you're with us this morning. We want you to make sure that you are welcomed and that you find a community that is warm and embracing you. But we need to tell you that to belong to this church in terms of like belonging, like, like being members of the church, you cannot do so unless you repent of your sin and trust in Christ for your salvation. It is only those who respond to the gospel, those who, whom God changes in their inside, their hearts, those to whom God gives a new life, only those are added by the Lord himself to the church. Of course, we would love for you to respond to the gospel. If you don't know what this gospel is, it's the news that God is rescuing rebellious people back to himself through the sacrifice of Christ. Christ was the one who paid the debt, the wages of our rebellion upon himself. And through Christ, by embracing him, believing on him, trusting on him, and turning away from our sin, we are actually given this new life from God. And when we, are, when we receive that new life, God adds us to the church. God adds us to his people. Oh, friend, if you've never embraced this gospel, I hope that you would do so today. I pray that you would ask on God to save you. And if you'd like to know more about that, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. We, the church, want to be a community that is open and warm to all who come and, and, and visit us and are part of, 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 of our services, but realize that the church is only for people who are saved, whom God saves, whom God brings to himself. Why? Because the church is a result of the gospel. Point number three, the th third thing we see in the book of Acts about the church is uh, the church is a supernatural community. The church is a supernatural community. We've seen that the church is um, a result of the gospel. The church is, uh, begins with the Old Testament people of God, but the church is also a supernatural community. And the first point I said is that the, in one sense, it's not true that the church began at Pentecost. Right now, with the third point, I want to say to you why, in another sense, it is true that the church began at Pentecost. And here's why. On Pentecost, the disciples of Jesus were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that he would do so. John the Baptist promised that Jesus would do so. And that happened, that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Now, nowhere in Acts are we given an explanation of what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But Paul gives us an explanation in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. There, Paul makes it very clear that in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So that to be baptized with the Spirit and in the Spirit means that we're actually baptized into one body. So that the, follow, the baptism with the Spirit 
has the following effect upon us, upon believers, upon followers of Jesus. It unites us into the body of Christ. It unites us with Christ himself and with all those who are already united with Jesus through his Holy Spirit. Now, friends, this union into the body of Christ was not possible prior to Pentecost, even for the followers of Jesus, because they haven't received the Spirit and haven't been baptized with the Spirit until the day of Pentecost. Christ has not baptized his followers until that day. These disciples were followers of Jesus. Jesus has given them power to do miraculous things during his earthly life, but they were not yet baptized with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. But at Pentecost, they were. That's why in Acts 9, when Saul is going to Damascus to persecute Christians, and he is uh, stopped by a miraculous vision of, of Jesus, and Jesus asks him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And, and, and Jesus is responding and making clear that in the persecuting of Christians, Saul was actually persecuting the Lord himself. Now, why does Jesus identify himself for the first time with his disciples? Because of Pentecost. After Pentecost, now the disciples, the followers of Jesus, are baptized into the body of Christ. So that now Christ himself identifies his followers as himself. To speak of the, of the body and the head as one being. Friends, that's why Pentecost is significant, because the Holy Spirit takes new believers and makes them into the body of Christ. This happens when people are baptized with the Holy Spirit. They are baptized into one body, the body of Christ. And in this sense, Pentecost is indeed the birth of the church. And this has great significance for us as a congregation, for us as a church. It means that the church is not just a natural human community. The church is not just a social friendship reality. The church is a supernatural community created by the Holy Spirit. This means that the church is not something that people can make. Now, of course, the church is made of people. I get that. But it's not something that people can make on their own power. The Holy Spirit has to create the spiritual bond between believers and unites them to their Lord. And this happens in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's why a church is not just a group of social interactions. The church relationships, friends, the church relationships are not based on friendship. You don't become friends first and then become church members. Now, it's true that church members should have such a strong, strong sense of belonging to one another, that friendships come out of that. But the foundation of the church is not friendships. The foundation of the church is not social relationships. It's not factors which create these friendships, like you know, similar life experiences, similar backgrounds, similar age, similar interests. Those are factors that create friendships. Those are not factors that can create the church. The church must be created by the spiritual unity 
that the Spirit, Holy Spirit creates among people who follow Christ together. So our sense of belonging to one another is based on something that is supernatural, on the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Uh, he said, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Friends, when members of a church strive for unity, they don't strive just for their unity. They strive for the unity of the Spirit among them. They strive to protect the unity that the Holy Spirit has created among them. You want to see a church full of the Holy Spirit? Look at a community where people who might have little in common have a strong bond and love for one another. That's why divisiveness in a church is such a big deal. Because it threatens not simply a human-based unity or a human community, but the supernatural unity that is created by the Spirit. So a divisive person actually acts against what the Spirit produces. When there's slander or divisiveness in the church, we act against the spiritual unity created by the Spirit. We act against the Holy Spirit Himself. When we are controlled by an individualistic attitude or a self-centered way of thinking about our lives, we act against the supernatural unity created by the Spirit among us. That's why in Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit, I'm sorry, the fruits of the flesh are not just sexual immorality and things like that. It's also fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and such things. These are put in the same category with sexual immorality and the like. Friends, these threaten the spiritual unity that is created by the Spirit. That's why we can be the body of Christ only because the Holy Spirit bonds us to Christ and to one another. It's because the Spirit creates a supernatural unity through our faith and obedience to Christ that we can be the church. Point number four. The church is not only a spiritual or a supernatural community. The church is a real community. The supernatural work of the Spirit doesn't just refer to some sort of uh, abstract idea of the universal church, uh, some, some sort of a gathering or, or the addition of all those who are saved. We see very, very few instances of that definition of the church in the New Testament. When we look at the church in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, we actually see a supernatural community that actually is manifested in a real community with flesh and blood with actual people, actually doing life together. It's amazing that, that the spiritual unity that Spirit creates challenges and enables these people from all kinds of backgrounds to actually live together. And what were they doing? Oh, lots of things. If you just look at verse uh, 42 in our text, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching so that the first and most important thing about a true church, a true gathering of believers, is not how good they feel among themselves, or how many fun activities they have together, but what they teach and believe together. The second thing they do is they devote themselves to fellowship. This word has, is, is very popular in Christian circles, but the word fellowship means nothing to unbelievers. Uh, the word really means sharing together. It's not just about having coffee or, or meeting up. It's about sharing together. Sharing life together. And we see that the book in the early church, in the very beginning of Acts, they did that in a very real way 
in an unparalleled way. That they were living life together. They were having fellowship together. They were sharing life together. Third, they were committed to the breaking of bread. Now, it's unlikely that this is referring to the Lord's Supper. Most likely in the context, it's referring to the fact that they were actually inviting each other over and eating together in their homes. Hospitality. They were not just Sunday Christians who just show up to church on Sunday and then live the rest of their lives during the week on their own, isolated from everybody else. It's sad that I've, I've heard people even, even trying, wanting to come to this church and saying, you know, I, I don't want to really be involved. I just want to have a place to come on Sunday morning. Don't look for me during the week. It's amazing that we have Christians who have this kind of idea about the fellowship of the church. But they were committing to the breaking bread. They were, they were having hospitality. I love what David Peterson says about their act of eating together in their homes. He says, it was a way of expressing the special relationship which believers had with one another in Christ. The special responsibility to one another involved in that relationship. Friends, in our home group, just a few weeks ago, we started working through a study called The Hospitality Commands that challenges us to think about being intentional of opening up our homes and inviting people into our homes. Because by, in, that's one of the ways we show that we're living life together. We open up each other's lives. And we know what's going on in our lives personally. Oh, friends, I hope and pray that we would do that kind of stuff, that we would grow in that here at Park Hills. But look at verse 46. Their fellowship around the table was with glad and generous hearts. And we read that when they gathered together, whether it was for public gathering in the temple or private gathering in their homes, notice that they were full of praise and that God gave favor to them with all people. Another thing we see that they were committed to prayer. They, they were people who were not just a good social club that loved doing stuff together. No, they were praying together. We see them praying in their homes. We see them praying daily in the temple. Even before Pentecost, they were praying together. In other parts of Acts, we see that the church was praying for guidance, for boldness, for deliverance. If there was a problem, they said, let's get together to pray about it. That's why I care and ask you that you would pray that more people would start coming to the evening prayer service because we want to be a community that actually prays together. Fifth, they were united in heart and mind. Verse, chapter 4, verse 32, they were, we are told that all believers were one in heart and mind. This is how their spiritual unity manifested. It manifested in real life experiences, life shared together. Of course, much more we could say uh, about what it means to live in a real community as a church. But friends, bottom line is that the church is a real community. It's not just a spiritual community. It's a real community with real relationships. I pray that that would characterize us as well. The final thing that we see about the church in the book of Acts is that the church is a dwelling of the presence of God. The church is a dwelling a dwelling place for the presence of God. The only descriptive phrase that describes a church in the book of Acts is in Acts 20, verse 28. It describes a church as the church of God. Now, again, church doesn't mean building. You, you know that, right? Nowhere, nowhere in the Bible do we see that the church means building. So it's not talking about this property belongs to God. It's talking about people, and not, not just people scattered around. 
It's actually talking about people gathered together. The, the word church means assembly, gathering. So it's as if it's saying the gathering of God, the assembly of God. Of course, it's not just God assembling by himself. He's gathering his people. That means that where his people gather, he is there with them. His presence is among them. And in this sense, this is what we are promised at the end of Revelation, that God will dwell in the midst of his people. That's the, that's the goal of our eternity. That's what we're going towards. And the church is a microcosm of that. The church is a display of that. What does it mean for God's people to have God's presence in their midst? Well, we should be able to point to the church as an example of that. It's amazing in Acts. We see this very clearly. It's not an accident that right after describing the life of the church as a real community where they were sharing life together, they were selling possessions, they were helping the needy, they were really living life together. The first thing that we're told after this description of the community is an abuse of that community. Ananiah and Sapphira. Amazing. And you know the story how actually God kills them both. Because not only have they sinned against God, but when asked if they did, they chose to side with their sin as opposed to confess it. It's, a, it's an amazing story that in some ways actually parallels the story of Achan at the beginning of Israel entering the, the land of Canaan, where God punishes the smallest of disobedience in a very real way, in a very severe way. I love what, again, David Peterson says about the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It demonstrates that God is near to and jealously guards the new community, which is his own possession. The story of Ananias and Sapphira, the judgment, exposes those who do not truly belong to the new community where God is present. God himself removed them from the membership and from life itself. The supernatural community is a dwelling place for the presence of God. That's why the church is characterized and the church fellowship is characterized by, by holiness. Now, not that Christians no longer sin. Please do not, do not misunderstand. Christians continue to sin, but we no longer remain in that sin. We no longer, and when we do sin, we no longer find excuses for it, but seek to repent of it, and we desire to fight it off. Moreover, those who do refuse to repent, we challenge lovingly. We counsel lovingly. And if after much counsel and, and help, if they choose not to repent and continue to stay in their sin, yes, the church is asked by God to remove them from membership. In this way, the church reflects the holiness of God against sin. It's not that the church is without sin. No. The, the church is with sin, but with repentant sin. We repent of it. And in that sense, we show our, our eagerness, our, our yearning for the holiness of God, that even in our failures, we continually come back to God and return to Him. Friends, the fellowship among members of the church is to be characterized by holiness because God is present among His people. That's the fifth thing we see in Acts. The church is a dwelling place of the presence of God. Five things we've seen in Acts about the church. The church begins with the Old Testament people of God. The church is a result of the gospel. The church is a supernatural community. The church is a real community. The church is a dwelling of the presence of God. 
Friends, if you're a Christian this morning and uh, you think that somehow the church is an optional experience for your Christian life, or you think that a gathering regularly with a church community is only a matter of convenience, I pray that the book of Acts would challenge you to see that your attitude toward the church is opposite and different than what we see in the book of Acts. I pray that you would repent and ask God to forgive you for thinking lightly about the church. I pray that you would adopt and, and have a zeal for adopting a biblical understanding of the church as a result of the gospel itself. Now, if you're a Christian and attend regularly to the church, you, you're, you're here. You're here every Sunday morning. Uh, and, and perhaps might even try to come on Sunday nights. But your connection to the church is only on Sundays. And you actually make it a point that you try not to connect with other Christians during the week, that you just want to be a solo Christian throughout the week. Well, friend, perhaps you're, you're, you might, there might be somebody who is actually just attending Sunday school, not even coming to our morning service. They just come to Sunday school. And we have some like that. But they, they don't interact with the rest of the people throughout the week. Well, pr friends, I pray and hope that we would be challenged and exposed by, by what we see in the book of Acts, that we should desire more than just regular participation on one day a week, that we should desire to live life together with other Christians throughout the week as well. And there's all kinds of ways. We don't have rules of how many times you have to meet. We, no, but there's all kinds of ways in which you share life together with other believers in this body throughout the week. Because being a Christian is not just about a Sunday deal. There's no such idea of being a member of the church only for the Sunday experience. If this describes you, I pray that you repent of it, that you seek meaningful relationships with members of the church. Now, if you re attend regularly the church and you are involved in all kinds of things throughout the week with members, you might say, oh, bingo, I, I guess I'm, I'm done. Well, I have something for you as well. If you attend regularly and not only on Sundays, but you also like to mingle with other Christians, but you're the kind of guy or gal who only does it for social things. You only show up when there's a social event or there's an event, but you never actually desire to study God's Word with someone. You're not very interested in the spiritual things, in the spiritual experiences that we do together, in prayer or other accountability groups or home groups or other things that we actually challenge each other spiritually. If you're just a social person, like you're a social butterfly, you might be super, super involved and present in all kinds of things in the life of this church, but actually you don't have a hunger for spiritual things. You actually would rather serve in other administrative things than actually pursue spiritual things when we're gathered together. Well, I hope the book of Acts challenges you that the Christian community, this gathering of the saints, is not just a social reality. It's a spiritual reality where we seek spiritual things. We seek to encourage each other spiritually. We seek to grow spiritually. And yes, we're going to create friendships. Yes, we're going to have a great time together when we meet. But above all things, we want to put spiritual things first. So friend, I pray that the book of Acts challenges all of us to rethink our view towards the church, our involvement and engagement with the church, our engagement with the members of the church. I love what... Um, uh, once someone said, when Christians live out their new membership in this new gospel community, they actually make the gospel visible. Uh, here's what one pastor said. Christians pro Christian proclamation 
might make the gospel audible. But Christians living together in local congregations make the gospel visible. The church is a gospel made visible. So that when we think lightly about the church, we actually think and reflect poorly about the very gospel itself. Friends, I pray for the members of this church, for the members of Park Hills Baptist Church, that we would be a faithful reflection of the gospel through our life together as the people of God, as the body of Christ, as the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who judges